0: Welcome to the November 16th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. On today's podcast, can fractionated dosing of gemtuzumab ozogamycin provide additional benefit over a single dose in older adults with AML? New study results link fractionated dosing to improved response depth and survival in patients without adverse genetics. Up next, loss of function of ENT3 drives histiocytosis. Researchers describe a novel pathway leading to histiocytosis that involves hyperactivation of TLR MAP kinase signaling. This suggests a potential benefit of MAP kinase-directed targeted therapy in a range of histiocytoses. Finally, unraveling resistance mechanisms to anti-CD20 treatments and B-cell malignancies through alternative splicing. The MS4A1 gene encoding human CD20 generates multiple mRNA isoforms with distinct 5' untranslated regions. These findings provide some early insights that could support development of RNA-based therapeutics. Let's go to our first research article, Fractionated versus Single-Dose Gemtuzumab Ozogamycin with Determinants of Benefits in Older AML, UK NCRI AML-18 Trial. The first author is Sylvie Freeman from the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom. Gemtuzumab Ozogamycin, or GO, is an antibody drug conjugate targeted at the CD33 antigen commonly expressed by AML cells. GO improves outcomes when added to induction chemotherapy in older patients with acute myeloid leukemia. However, it's not clear whether a fractionated GO schedule provides additional benefit over single dose GO. In AML 16, a single dose of GO added to induction therapy was previously shown to significantly improve overall survival at four years, owing to a reduction in risk of relapse. And in the alpha 0701 study, GO given on a fractionated schedule of three doses improved event-free survival. Both studies showed that GEO improved outcomes, and there was some suggestion that the fractionated dose provided a greater survival benefit. But this indirect comparison is not ideal, partly due to differences in patient age. In AML-16, patients ranged in age from 51 to 84 years, with a median age of 67. In alpha O seven O one, patients ranged from 50 to 70 years, and the median age was 62. Then there's toxicity. In AML-16, the addition of single-dose GO to standard therapy was not associated with increased toxicity. But in alpha O seven O one, fractionated GO increased hematologic toxicity notably persistent thrombocytopenia. That leads us to the current study, the NCRI-AML18 trial. Investigators randomized older adults with AML to receive a single versus a fractionated schedule of G.O. in the first induction course. Due to toxicity concerns, the investigators in AML18 opted to give two doses of G.O. rather than the three doses of G.O. given in alpha 701 the research article in Blood reports the five-year outcomes from this study, in which older adults with AML or high-risk myodysplasia were randomized to receive either GO on day 1 or GO on days 1 and 4, GO2, of course 1 induction. The day 1 dose was 3 mg per meter squared and was not capped, while the two doses of GO were each 3 mg per meter squared, with a maximum of 5 mg per dose. A total of eight hundred fifty two patients were randomized to fractionated or single dose GO with induction donorubicin and Cytarabine. The median age was sixty eight years and median follow up was fifty point two months. After course one, response was not significantly different between groups. The rate of complete remission was sixty three percent for fractionated GO and fifty seven percent for single dose GO. By contrast, there was a significant difference in MRD. 50% of patients receiving fractionated G.O. achieved MRD less than 0.1% post-course 1, compared to 41% of patients receiving single-dose G.O. The odds ratio was 0.72 and the p-value was 0.027. Overall, there was no significant difference in survival for fractionated versus single dose GO. However, when patients found to have adverse genetics were excluded, there was a significant difference. The five year overall survival was 29% in the fractionated arm and 24% in the single agent arm, with a hazard ratio of 0.89 and a p value of 0.14 but in a sensitivity analysis that omitted patients with adverse cytogenetics, or TP53 mutations, the 5-year overall survival was 33% for fractionated GEO and 26% for single-dose GEO, with a hazard ratio of 0.83 and p-value of 0.045. Let's turn to the patients who received an allogeneic transplant in first remission. 228 patients in total, or about one-quarter of the overall patient population in this study. Transplanted patients on the fractionated G.O. arm had a survival advantage, with a hazard ratio of 0.67 and P of 0.033. Of note, the survival benefit of fractionated G.O. was lost when survival was censored at transplant. According to investigators, that emphasizes the importance of consolidating post-induction responses in older adults with AML, as their relapse risk remains high. The frequency and severity of adverse events was comparable for fractionated and single-dose G.O. Time to platelet recovery after course one was not significantly different between groups, though platelet recovery times were longer in patients with secondary AML who received fractionated G.O. Also in blood, Christoph Rohlig of University Hospital Dresden in Germany provides a commentary on this study. Rolig says these mature results from a large trial show for the first time in a randomized fashion that adding two fractionated doses of G.O. to intensive chemotherapy is better than one. Rolig adds that higher cumulative G.O. doses achieved in the fractionated arm increased efficacy without excess toxicity, most likely due to CD33 receptor kinetics. After internalization, he explains, CD33 receptors are recycled and expressed again on the surface of myeloblasts, which takes approximately 72 hours, With that in mind, a fractionated schedule every three days is more likely to provide consistent anti-leukemic activity. So if two doses are better than one, would three doses be better than two? That could potentially be the next chapter in the GO story. It's unsure if the sequel to the AML-18 story will be written, but the results in blood clearly suggest a dose-response relationship that gives fractionated GO an advantage in these older patients with AML. The next article is titled, Loss of Function of ENT3 Drives Histiocytosis and Inflammation Through TLR MAP Kinase Signaling. The first author is Ruth Shiloh of Schneider Children's Medical Center in Petak Tikva, Israel. Histiocytosis refers to a group of myeloid neoplasms characterized by proliferation and accumulation of macrophages, dendritic cells, or monocyte-derived cells. This promotes inflammation and damage to surrounding tissues and organs. The most common is Langerhans cell histiocytosis. Others include Erdheim-Chester disease, juvenile xanthogranuloma, and rosai dorfman disease, or RDD. Our understanding of histiocytosis pathogenesis is incomplete. These disorders are thought to be driven by activation of extracellular signal-related kinase, or ERK. So in many cases, histiocytosis involves somatic mutations in the genes that encode the mitogen-activated protein kinase, or MAP kinase, cascade. But not all cases exhibit these mutations, suggesting the existence of additional pathways for MAPK activation. The present research article focuses on H syndrome, an inherited inflammatory disorder that predisposes patients to developing histiocytosis. For reasons that are unclear, manifestations of H-syndrome include hyperpigmentation, hypertrichosis, hearing loss, hepatosplenomegaly, and heart anomalies, among other clinical features. Cutaneous features are common, and typical skin lesions contain infiltrating histiocytes, H-syndrome is caused by loss of function mutations in the SLC29A3 gene, which encodes lysosomal equilibrative nucleoside transporter 3, or ENT3. ENT3 transports nucleosides across the lysosomal membrane and into the cytoplasm after degradation of nucleic acids. Loss of ENT3 function results in accumulation of nucleosides, which elevates lysosomal pH and impairs lysosomal function. In the present paper, Shiloh and co-investigators conducted phenotypic, molecular, and functional analyses of cells from patients with H syndrome, and they uncover a molecular pathway that causes the inflammation and histiocytosis characteristic of this genetic condition. In immunohistochemical analysis of histiocytic lesions from patients with H-syndrome, the investigators found high levels of phosphorylated ERK. That indicates that MAP kinase activation plays a central role in the pathogenesis of this disorder. Next, they sought somatic mutations via sequencing of DNA and RNA. However, they found no evidence of somatic mutations, including in genes encoding the various proteins encompassing the MAPK pathway. That suggests that the characteristic germline mutation in SLC29A3 are sufficient to drive formation of histiocytic lesions in H-syndrome by themselves. Further work by Shiloh et al. helped to explain this unanticipated association. In gene-set enrichment analysis of H-syndrome monocytes, they found that signaling of toll-like receptor, or TLR, was the most enriched signaling pathway. The TLR family plays a key role in innate immunity. A few TLRs are expressed in human monocytes, including TLR7 and TLR8, and are activated by endosomal short RNA fragments and nucleosides after degradation of phagocytosed cells. Investigators also performed an in vitro lysosomal activity assay to assess nucleoside accumulation in H-syndrome monocytes. As compared to healthy donor monocytes, H-syndrome monocytes exhibited substantially lower lysosomal activity. That suggests that the accumulation of nucleosides in H-syndrome monocytes is high enough to result in lysosomal dysfunction. So, the enhanced TLR signaling that was observed could be a result of elevated nucleoside ligand availability. Based on these findings, the researchers administered a MEC inhibitor, trimetinib, to a patient with H syndrome. That patient had debilitating skin lesions and an extensive maxillary sinus histiocytic tumor. Trametinib induced a slow but persistent reduction in tumor volume. It also improved systemic inflammation and anemia. The tumor ultimately resolved, and the patient has remained in remission for two years as of this report. While further study is needed, investigators said these findings suggest that MEK inhibitors could be a promising new treatment for patients with H syndrome. Altogether, one might say that hyperactive TLR signaling is putting the H in H syndrome. That's the title of a commentary on these findings, authored by Lauren K. Meyer of the University of Washington in Seattle and Kim E. Nichols of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. In their commentary, Meyer and Nichols say the data suggest a mechanism whereby ENT3 dysfunction leads to nucleoside accumulation in the lysosomes of H-syndrome monocytes. This activates TLR7 and 8, resulting in downstream MAPK signaling, which initiates a pro-inflammatory transcriptional program and contributes to persistence of histiocytic lesions, and all of this is potentially reversible with MAPK inhibition. Meyer and Nichols note that this isn't the first study to explore the use of MAP kinase inhibitors to treat histiocytosis, given the frequency of MAP kinase pathway activation in these disorders. They say that while the current study provides further support for this strategy, There remain significant unanswered questions regarding the appropriate duration of therapy and the durability of response. Nevertheless, Myers and Nichols conclude, the present work provides compelling preclinical data justifying further investigation of MAP kinase pathway inhibitors in patients with H-syndrome. Our final article is... Alternative splicing of its 5' UTR limits CD20 mRNA translation and enables resistance to CD20-directed immunotherapies. The first author is Jiwei Ang from the Division of Cancer Pathobiology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. The approval of rituximab more than 25 years ago was a breakthrough in B-cell malignancy treatment. Rituximab targets CD20 a cell surface protein encoded by the MS4A1 gene. CD20 is an ideal therapeutic target, as it is expressed in most B-cell malignancies. Today, several different CD20-directed therapies are used in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, follicular lymphoma, Burkitt lymphoma, and high-grade B-cell lymphomas, among other B-cell malignancies. Beyond rituximab, CD20 is now targeted by other therapies including additional monoclonal antibodies, CAR T-cells, and bispecific T-cell engagers, such as mosunetuzumab, which is approved for third-line or later treatment of follicular lymphoma. These targeted immunotherapies have improved survival, but emergence of treatment resistance remains a major challenge. Anti-CD20 therapy resistance is often linked to loss of CD20 antigen, and rituximab treatment of tumors with low levels of CD20 are associated with low response rates, poor efficacy, and lack of cure. Significant knowledge gaps remain regarding CD20 dynamics in treatment-resistant B-cell malignancies. In one study, CD20 loss was seen in one-quarter of patients with B-cell malignancies who progressed after receiving mosonituzumab. Yet this CD20 loss could not be explained by emerging genetic mutations in MS4A1 or disappearance of CD20 mRNA. In the current research article, Ang and co-authors examine post-transcriptional mechanisms of CD20 dysregulation. They show that through alternative splicing, the MS4A1 gene encoding human CD20 generates multiple mRNA isoforms with distinct 5' untranslated regions, or UTRs, Up to four distinct 5' UTRs, or CD20, could be detected and quantified using RNA sequencing methods and RT-qPCR. These variants, termed V1, V2, V3, and V4, were detectable in normal B-cells and B-cell malignancies. The most abundant were V1 and V3. In most cell lines and samples, they accounted for more than 90% of total CD20 transcript pool. However, V1 generated negligible amounts of CD20 protein while V3 was efficiently translated and thus responsible for the bulk of CD20 protein. The V1 isoform had an RNA stem loop structure and upstream open reading frames that inhibited its translation. During normal B-cell activation, cells shifted splicing from V1 to V3 resulting in an increase in CD20 protein levels. The investigators then used splice-switching morpholino-oligomers to redirect splicing toward V3, which resulted in augmented rituximab-mediated cytotoxicity in B-cell lines in vitro. Reconstituting CD20 knockout cells with V3 mRNA led to recovery of CD20 expression. By contrast, CD20 was undetectable in cells reconstituted with V1 mRNA. Surprisingly, cellular immunotherapies had differential effects on these variants in vitro. CD20-targeted CAR T-cells unexpectedly killed V1-expressing cells equally well as V3-expressing cells, despite an apparent lack of CD20 positivity in the V1-expressing cells. By contrast, the bispecific T-cell engager mosunetuzumab was effective against V3-expressing cells but not V1-expressing cells. Investigators also performed RNA sequencing on four follicular lymphomas that relapsed after mosanituzumab treatment. In two cases, CD20 downregulation was accompanied by a shift from V3 to V1. It's important to note that these observations are not unique to CD20-directed immunotherapies. Aberrant skipping of coding exons in CD19 and CD22 is associated with poor response to immunotherapy and B-cell malignancies. So, this study extends those observations to help explain an important cause of resistance to CD20-directed immunotherapies. In a commentary, Marek Mraz of Masaryk University in Brno, Czech Republic, writes that these research findings demonstrate that human CD20 mRNA undergoes alternative splicing to generate distinct 5' UTR variants that determine both the cell surface CD20 levels in malignant B-cells and the interpatient variability in the expression of this therapeutic target. These variants, he added, can also be utilized as an escape mechanism from anti-CD20 therapies. Of note, the findings build on observations from the year 1989 when the structure of MS4A1 was characterized and several different MS4A1 mRNA transcripts encoding CD20 were identified. Now, more than 30 years after that work, Aang and co-authors have finally deciphered the effect of MS4A1 mRNA isoforms on translational efficacy. However, Mraz said that the evolutionary importance of this regulatory mechanism remains uncertain. Similarly, it's not clear if the mechanism applies to other members of the gene family. Nevertheless, he added, these findings have clear implications for explaining why low pretreatment treatment CD20 levels exist in some B-cell malignancies and in individual patients. These findings also provide early building blocks in the development of RNA-based therapeutics. In their article, Ang and co-authors conclude that harnessing this mechanism to achieve better treatment outcomes will be the next challenge for the cancer immunotherapy community. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast, For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries in which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.